if you will, please open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And if you have one of the Bibles in the pew or that you purchased in the side overflow, uh, or in the, the hall now, uh, it's on page 844. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, page 844. As you're turning there, consider, consider with me the, the paradox of Christmas. This is Christmas season, right? And we celebrate the birth of a baby. And I, for one, am quite well acquainted with babies these days. Ours is six weeks old. And uh, they are utterly helpless creatures, aren't they? I mean, they can't even go all night uh, without eating. Of course, that affects my wife much more than me. I sleep through it. But anyway, they, they are needy, needy creatures. And yet this baby that we celebrate is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The baby is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we have quite a paradox there to consider. What we have there is power clothed in weakness. We have strength, almighty strength, taking on vulnerability. The paradox is evident in the songs we sing. We sing, what child is this? And there's the song you've probably heard on the radio, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know your baby will walk on water, that he will save our sons and daughters? In other words, did you know that this baby, this small, dependent baby, is the most glorious, powerful person? Whoever walked the face of the earth, he is God. And yet he's still really a baby. The weakness and vulnerability is not just a mere illusion. It's not something that he sort of zips on and can sort of unzip then and it's not really him. No, he is a baby. He does need the constant care and protection of a teenage girl or he'll die. And he's God at the same time. That's the paradox and the mystery of Christmas. And friends, the most important thing for our lives is that we understand Jesus rightly. What child is this is the most critical question that you need to answer. It's the question which, if you get right, you get everything right. But if you get it wrong, you get everything wrong. And that's because, as the Bible says, Jesus is the center of all of history. And everything is summed up in him, the Bible says. So if you understand him, you understand everything else. But if you don't understand him, if you get him wrong, You get everything else wrong because you don't understand the center of it all. You don't understand the meaning of everything. And it really comes down to this. You need to understand the weight and magnificence of Jesus' glory so that you will trust him as your Savior. So you will believe in him. And you need to understand his weakness and frailty so you understand that he took that up for you. And he can relate to your frailty. Bruised, we read, he does not crush, the Bible says. He can deal gently with us because he knows our needs. And he needs to be vulnerable, able to die, so that he can die to take the punishment we deserve. Do you understand Jesus that way? Do you understand both? Christmas is Christmas for you celebrating the paradox of your Savior. Well, the passage we're going to look at, it's not typically thought of as a Christmas passage, but I think it is a great passage for this time of year. It is going to answer the question for us, what child is this? So let me read Mark chapter 1 verses, or sorry, Mark chapter 9 verses 1 through 13, 
And then we'll see what we can learn from it. I'm going to read all through verse 13, but we're going to only focus on the first part. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to him, to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this passage. Lord, focus us on your word right now in this moment, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and understand your word, repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a lot going on in this passage. I don't know if you picked it up. I think nearly every theme in the Bible is actually present in this passage, and we're not going to have time to untangle all of them. But at the very center of this passage we see something that is actually very simple and yet profound and sublime. And the first thing I want us to do in understanding this passage is for us to squint, sort of like what the disciples had to do when they saw Jesus, and let the details fade away and look at what is at the center of all of this. And when we do that, I think what we see is the members of the Trinity. This passage at its center is about the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, interacting with one another. That's the essence of what's going on here. Now, you might say, okay, Mike, I see the Father and the Son, but where is the Spirit there? Well, look at verse 7. See that word overshadowed, and a cloud overshadowed them? Okay, that word, when it's in the Bible, always has reference to the Holy Spirit. It's used... In the book of Luke, when it says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed or came upon Mary and she conceived. It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the depths of the deep. So this word has special reference to the Spirit, and it means the Spirit is present. So, in essence, what we see here then is a Trinitarian interaction. And it's important to recognize that. To to be honest, I missed that at first. And I struggled to understand the passage. My first attempt to prepare this sermon, understand the passage, was to to try to notice all the themes in here, hold them all in my head at the same time, and then ask the question, well, how does it apply to us? And in addition to giving you a headache, that's just not the best way to go about this. 
I then realized that I was asking the wrong question. It's not, how does this apply to us? You see, if this, if this story, if this event is at essence a, a Trinitarian interaction, then perhaps the first question isn't, how do we benefit? The first question is, how does the Trinity benefit? Or more particularly, how does Christ benefit? Obviously, there are implications for us. Otherwise, Mark would not have recorded it here. But this event happened, I believe, for the sake of Christ first. And only if we first understand how it is for him, then can we understand how it is for us. Let me explain how it is for him. Now, if you've been with us for the series on Mark, or if you've read the book of Mark, you you might remember a very similar statement that the Father makes earlier on. Do you remember? remember when it is? The baptism of Christ? Jesus comes out of the water, and you hear a voice from heaven. The Father speaks, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then do you know what happens right after that? Right after that, Jesus is driven, the Greek word is more like thrown, into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested by Satan. And do you remember what the test was? It doesn't appear in Mark, but the other Gospels, the test is, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God. What did God just say to him at the baptism? This is my beloved Son. Then he goes into the wilderness, and Satan says, oh, if you're the Son of God, do this. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here and let the angels catch you. What I think is going on there is that the temptation that that, uh, Christ experienced by Satan was a temptation to use his status as the Son of God for his own agenda. Therefore, I'm sure you can appreciate how just before that, that Christ goes into the wilderness to face Satan all alone, he hears the voice of his Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, God's God affirmed his love for Christ as the son right before he would go out all alone to be tempted to see his sonship apart from his relationship to his father. I think that's what's going on in the baptism. Now, by the time we get to to, um, Mark chapter 9, the passage for today, Jesus' ministry is almost over, except he has one more extremely difficult test. Jesus is going to go to the cross all alone. He will feel the absence of his father. He will cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he will hear a satanic voice. If you are the son of God, come down from there. In other words, another temptation to use his divine status for his own agenda. And I do think it's a satanic temptation because remember, in the temptation in the wilderness, it says that Satan left him for a more opportune time. Now he's on the cross all alone. And again, it's that voice, if you are the Son of God. Another temptation to use his divine status for his own agenda, and he must say no. And in order to prepare him for that, God says to him on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's as if the Father is saying to the Son and showing the Son, not just speaking, but showing, this is what it means for you to be the Son of God. It means to be enveloped in the Trinitarian glory. Now go and pass the test. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but 
But Jesus is God. He knows everything. I don't understand why he has to be prepared for this test in any sense. He's God. Glad you're thinking that, if you are. And yes, he is God, but keep in mind that he is also now human. Remember the paradox of Christmas. He's God and man. He has truly, really taken on human flesh. He's become like us. And the Bible makes it explicit what it means that he has become like us when it says that he was tempted in every way like us. Tempted in every way like us. Can we be tempted to forget who we are as the children of God? Yes. Christ knows what that temptation is like. He can't fail in it like we can. But that only makes the temptation worse because he can go further and further along um, and feels the weight of it more and more. So what we have then on the Mount of Transfiguration is the Father loving the Son and glorifying the Son in his human nature. And therefore the Father is speaking to the Son in words because he's now a human. He's using language. And this is to prepare him for the test. He will experience in his human nature, when he is tempted in his human nature, to use his status as the Son of God for his own purpose. Does that make sense? We're wrestling with deep theology here. So yes, Jesus does have to be prepared. The Bible even says that he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. He's learning how to obey his Father. And this affirmation on him as the Son of God is about preparing him for that test. Now that we understand the general contours of what this event is, let's think a bit more carefully about what's going on here. We're still squinting, not looking at all the details yet. But I think at the core of what's going on here, we see two different elements. First, there's the the obvious one, the transfiguration, right? The drastic change in Jesus' appearance. He's he's transfigured, the text says. And and that's the Greek word that just means to be changed. It's actually the word from which we get our word, metamorphosis. Jesus is metamorphosized. He's still Jesus. He's still recognized as Jesus, which is why I think he's, he's still human here, okay? But he's changed. He becomes radiant. His clothes are whiter than any human-made whiteness there is. And this appearance makes James and John and Peter terrified. See that in verse 6? For they were terrified, stupefied. They see him changed into glory. This is an amazing display of glory. And the other element that we have here is the Father's voice. Okay, two elements. The change of appearance and the voice of affirmation. This is my beloved Son. And and Peter explains in his epistle that the, the voice also says, in whom I am well pleased. Again, the exact same formula from the baptism. So what we have here is, one, the physical display of Christ, and two, we have the affirming word from the Father. And what I want to contend is that these two cannot be separated. In order to understand this passage, we need to understand how they are meant to be seen together. You see, the glory of Christ is the glory of Christ in the context of his relationship with the Father. And the relationship with the Father is the glory of Christ. John Piper explains this well. I think he's right. Listen to what he says here. He says, the point is not merely that humans should stand in awe of such a glory, but that, listen to this, God himself takes full pleasure 
in the radiance of his son and revels and sorry and reveals his son in blinding light and then says this is my delight piper helped me see that this event is not first about us it's about christ it's for him we can't reduce this simply to a lesson on how we should love christ it's first about how god the father loves christ and how god the father is pleased with christ And that affirming word is wrapped up in glory. What does it look like for the Father to be well-pleased in Christ? It looks like for Christ to glow. It looks like for him to be shot through with glory. The Father is pleased with him because he's the glorious Son. And he is the glorious Son because the Father is pleased with him. If I could risk blasphemy for just a second here, I could say that it's sort of like, exactly like, but sort of like a rough analogy so when, you know, a child does something good, parents, you can relate to this, children, you can relate to this, and, and then the father says, oh, well done, my child, and then that child glows, right? You've seen it. It's like that except on a divine scale where he literally glows, and, and those who are around fall down in terror. The point, though, is that this glory is tied to the relationship, and the relationship between the Father and the Son, is shot through with glory. Let me just show you this in another passage of Scripture. Uh, John 17, Christ, and just a couple things where I I mentioned this here. You can look it up later. John 17, Christ prays to the Father, glorify me with the glory we had before the world was. So it's about glory. Glory we had before the world was. And then he also prays, you loved me before the world was. I think there he's talking about the same reality from two different perspectives. Eternal love and eternal glory. Those two have got to go together. Now, friends, I'm not saying that glory is simply reduced to love. You scratch below the surface of glory, you get love. And, oh, that's just the same as what we have in our relationships. No, I'm not saying that. Jesus shone with a radiance that that makes you fall down on your face. Parents, you love your kids. But no matter how much you love them... It doesn't turn their clothes white. You may wish it did when they spilled chocolate syrup on it at the church potluck, but it doesn't happen that way. Our human love doesn't have the weight that divine love has. The divine love is glorious because it's divine. Now, some of you might have noticed that that this actually fits very well with our understanding of the Trinity. In Sunday school class, we're working through uh, the uh, church's statement of faith, and uh, great discussions today about election. But a few weeks ago, we talked about the Trinity and how the Trinity is three persons and one essence. Three persons who share the same essence, the same glory. Think of what that implies. It implies that that one essence, that glory, is irreducibly relational. And what that means is, in other words... You can't get beyond the personal interaction of the Trinity just to the raw glory of it. No. The glory is the glory of the one who are also three. It is personal glory, or better, interpersonal glory. 
It is the glory of the three members of the Trinity in and through their relationship with one another as the three are acting in one accord, in complete unity for the glory of the other. The point is, you can't make God's glory simply about raw power. Is God powerful? Yes. But this is a Trinitarian personal power and glory that is, is at root relational. Friends, I wonder... Uh, do you see God as that God-centered? Now, what we've, we're presenting a picture here of God is not first oh, just about us, first about himself. I wonder, do you have room in your thinking about God for God to do something that isn't first and foremost for you, but is actually first and foremost for himself? You know, I've heard from time to time, you know, questions, sometimes in Sunday school or wherever, people ask, why did God create the world? And someone says, well, Because he was lonely. But friends, that's absurd. Anyone who would say that doesn't understand Christ as he's revealed here. I mean, think about how Christ is revealed here. This is the son that the father had with him for all of eternity. He's the glorious son that he had with him for all of eternity. Do you think he was bored and lonely with that son? Absolutely not. And let's suppose for a second he was bored with his son, which is not true, but let's just suppose he was. If he's bored with that son, do you think creating us is going to like fix the problem? We don't glow. We, we may radiate something, but it's not good. You know? That's not to say there isn't something great about humans. There is. But it's because we are made in God's image. But God doesn't need to behold us as the image. He has the real son there to behold. It'd be like if I hang up pictures of my kids in my house and you come over to my house and you say, oh, he, he just must be bored and he needs these pictures in order to have some human interaction to entertain him. Like, no, that's ridiculous. I have the kids. I have all of the kids. And I don't need these pictures there. The pictures are there because I love my kids. That's the same way with our, our creation as being made in the image of God. We exist because God is first pleased with his son and then makes people in the image of his son. Friends, do you have that God-centered view of who God is and what, is, what he is doing in the world? Now, friends, if you don't understand that God acts first for himself, you'll never understand how he then acts for us. Why? The answer is because, as we see here, what God does for us is to bring us into his Trinitarian glory. That's the awesome part. That's the essence of salvation to be included in the Trinitarian glory. Not, of course, as a fourth member of the Trinity, but to be included in Christ, because he is our mediator to the Father. Notice here what happens. Verse 2, Christ takes the disciples with him. And the verbs that are used in verse 2 are quite interesting. He takes them, or you could translate that something like, he receives them to himself. And then he he leads them up the mountain, or you could translate that, he bears them up the mountain. The point is, the disciples come at Jesus' own initiative. It's not like Jesus is going for a walk and they say, hey, can we join you? And he says, well, okay. It's, it's not like that. He brings them up to the mountain with himself. And there, they see the glory of God. They witness it. They see it with their eyes. And that is very significant because what we have in the Old Testament is a very clear warning that no one's going to see the face of God, the glory of God, and live to tell about it. But Jesus takes them up. 
And He doesn't hide their face as God did with Moses when Moses was on the mountain. No, they see it. They see the glory of God in Christ. Yes, they're terrified, but we're supposed to realize what's amazing here is that they live. And why is that? It's because Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory that we can see. He mediates God's glory to us because He is in human form. Now we go back to that paradox that we looked at at the beginning. He is God and man. So He really is the glory of God. He's not, you know, sometimes we think, well, in order to become man, he had to, like, diminish the glory of God. But but no, one of the formulas that the church has used is to say that Christ is undiminished glory. He is God. He is fully God. And yet he's also fully man. He is the glory of God revealed in such a way that it is for us. Please don't think of him as less than fully God. Oh, that's why we can see him. No, he is fully God. That's why it's beneficial for us to see him. But he is fully God and fully man. So he can mediate the glory of God to us. Friends, do you realize that seeing the glory of God in Christ is what it means to become a Christian? That's that's another description for being a Christian. Listen to Paul describe how we become Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And I'd be surprised if Paul isn't referencing the transfiguration here because of the similarity in themes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has, listen to this, shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See those themes there? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Mediated in and through Christ. Through the face of Christ. And friends, that corresponds so clearly to the transfiguration, doesn't it? We come to know God through Christ. Because He is the one who can bring us into the presence of God. And if we are with Christ, if we are in Christ, no matter how terrified we may be, we'll be safe. We'll be able to stand. Friends, not only is this how salvation begins, it is its final goal. Listen to Revelation 21, starting at verse 22. Here Paul is describing the final dwelling place for God's people. And listen to what he says. Now, John was, of course, there at the Mount of Transfiguration, so I'm sure he saw some similarities. Look for the similarities here. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need, listen to this, no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's Christ. He's the light. To walk in the light of the Lamb is what heaven is all about. And then John continues, By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Why won't there be night there? Because the Lamb will be there, and He is the light. Heaven is a place where the glory of Christ will shine through everything and envelop everyone. The glory of Christ will be evident. And we won't just know it in our heads, we'll see it. We'll see it. But friends, we don't simply 
look upon the glory of Christ as something that is remote and outside of us. In other words, we don't relate to the glory of Christ as a mere spectator sitting up in the stands. No, we are down on the field. We are participant in this glory. Two pointers in this passage to that reality. First, uh, the revel- two pointers in the, in the John 9 passage. But, but let's think first about the Revelation passage. It's said there that there is no temple. Did you catch that? And that's because Christ himself is the temple. The temple is the meeting place for God and man. That's where God and man would meet in the temple. Well, Christ is God and man, so he is the new temple. There's no temple in the new city because Christ is there and he is the meeting place. Now that same point is being made on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is the temple. Earlier in the Bible, we see that when people, when, when mountains are discussed, mountains are a kind of temple. Uh, Mount Sinai acted like a temple. But here, they're up on the mountain, but Jesus is the temple. And, and we know that, that Jesus is not thinking of an earthly temple at all here because of what he tells Peter when Peter suggests that they build a tabernacle. Tabernacles are, are temporary temples. Peter wants, oh, this is a great display of glory. Let's contain it on this place. Let's have this be the meeting place between God and man so we can be here and we can live here, up here. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way to go. Peter's thinking of it all wrong. Jesus says, the point is, God did not take, God's Son did not take on human flesh, come down to earth, so that the glory could be contained on a mountain where only a few people could see it. No, no, that's not what he did. Jesus is the temple. And the glory of God abides in him. And then what Jesus says to the people is, you are my temple. You are my body. You are the temple, really. The Holy Spirit unites believers to Christ so that where, where his body is, where his church is, there he is. There his glory is manifested itself. And that is so the glory can spread throughout the whole world. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus brings the disciples up on the mountain to see this. Because they are the ones that are going to take the glory of Christ out to the whole world. Friends, do you realize that that's our job? If we are part of the body of Christ, if we are part of this church, the church universal sense, I mean, if we are that, it is our job to represent Christ, represent the glory of Christ in everything we do. What is our vision for the church? Some churches have vision statements here. I think Ephesians 4 is a good statement of what our vision for the church is. It is that we would grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we would become Christ as his body. In light of the transfiguration, there's a very high mark there, isn't it? This is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in his glory. Does that mean we will physically glow? Well, yes, one day we will. Because when Christ returns, the Bible says, when he is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. We will have the resurrection body like Christ's. We will be glorified with Christ when he returns. But until that day, we reflect Christ. We reflect the glory of Christ by our faith and by our love. In the way we interact with one another. The way we care for one another. 
the way, especially by our faith and love, that we lay down our lives for one another. Being willing to suffer, to bring the glory of Christ to bear in others' lives. And there's another indication from this passage that we don't relate to this glory as mere spectators, but as participants. And that's the fact that the glory cloud comes and envelops everyone. Look there at verse 7 again. See that word I mentioned before, overshadowed, that has reference to the Spirit? Notice that it's not talking simply about what happens to Jesus. It's talking about what happens to disciples. And the cloud overshadowed them. It doesn't say him. It overshadows them. The cloud comes down and it, it envelops everyone there in glory. Friends, Christ wants to share his glory with us. He prays that in John 17. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. See that there? That's that's what salvation is. Coming up into that that relationship of glory, that Trinitarian glory. Christ is the Son of God. Oh, and let me tell you what all that means. It means that the Father's pronouncement, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, is His pronouncement on us too, if we are joined by faith to Christ. Christ is the Son of who merited the Father's approval. Christ lived in such a way that the Father could say, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And how did he earn that? He earned that by dying on the cross to receive the penalty for all the things that we've done wrong. We've not honored God as we ought to have. As I said earlier, God made us in the image of his Son. He did that to show off the glory of his Son. But friends, none of us have lived in such a way that we do show off the glory of his Son. Now, do we? No, and, and every time we don't, every time we don't live up to what the Son would have done, we, we lie about the Son because we are made in His image. It's like we have that stamp upon us. This is the glory of my Son, and then we behave so horribly wrong. So what did God do? He sent His Son in human form to live the kind of life that we were supposed to live. And He obeyed His Father perfectly. He honors God in all things, including Dying on the cross for the people who his father sent him to save. And then, not only does God forgive our sins for Christ's sake, but he gives us the reward that Christ deserves. We are then adopted as God's children. We don't have the natural right to be called children of God. No, we, we blew that in the fall when we sinned against him. But in Christ, we who are far off are brought near. We are made sons because we come to God in the Son. Friends, how do we apply all this amazing truth? Well, the first thing that I think we need to see here is that we just need to be amazed by it. We need to sit there and see the glory of Christ and just be amazed. And then we should be overwhelmed at his great love, that he would share that glory with us. But the other thing we can do to apply this passage to us is to do exactly what the Father tells us to do. Notice there in verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And God here is actually fulfilling prophecy at this point. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you. It is to Him you shall listen. God's saying, here's the one. Here's the one. Listen to him. This one is of infinite glory and therefore is worth listening to. 
He's worth heeding. Are you, are you listening to him? Do you recognize that he is actually speaking to you now? The, the word of God, the scriptures, are the word of Christ. And, and so long as what I'm preaching to you actually corresponds to the scriptures, it's your job to make sure it does, but if it does, you ought to take it as the word of God, the word of Christ. You ought to listen to it. Friends, are, are you listening to it? Do you have ears to hear? Peter, later on in his epistle, says something that is profound. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter here is reflecting on the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is what he says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Clearly, Peter is talking about the transfiguration. Peter is saying, we were there, we saw, we heard. But notice what Peter says, verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Until the day when Christ returns and his glory shines in and through us, until that day, we have the word. It is our light. And it is a more sure foundation than a one-time experience seeing the glory of God. Because it is, it is not going anywhere. It is here and abides, and this is God's word to us. I think Peter, in this passage, is applying what he heard from God the Father. Listen to him. Listen to him. Okay, church, he's saying, listen to the word. Apply diligent effort to understand this word. I have a feeling that if you saw the glory of Christ this afternoon like the disciples did, it would stop you in your tracks. You would, you would heed that revelation. But Peter is saying here that there is a more sure revelation of God in your life, and that is the Holy Scriptures. Do you give proper weight to God's Word? Do, do you heed it? Do you listen? What would it look like for you to take God's Word more seriously in your life? Does it mean letting the Bible define for you what is truly important? Does it mean actually committing to believing certain truths that are clearly in Scripture that you might not be so comfortable with? And saying, okay, this is your Word, so I will believe it, and I will follow it, even if I don't understand everything. Does it mean believing what God says is true over and against what other people say is true? Believing who you are as God's children over and against what the world is wanting to define you accordingly? According to? Does it mean seeing the commandments in, God, in the Bible as not mere suggestions, take it or leave it, but as actually binding words on your life from God the Father? Friends, I encourage you, talk to somebody else about what it means to take God's word more seriously in your life. Whatever you think would mean to take God's, more ser- God's word more seriously, have a conversation with somebody about how you need to do that and what that looks like in your life. It's that important that it's worth risking revealing faults about yourself. 
It's that important. The Christ who we see here in His magnificent glory is the Christ who will one day return and be glorified amongst all those who are His. And Christ wants you to believe in Him, to trust in Him, so that you may be His. Let's pray.